Hi, I'm Daryl Urbanski, and welcome to the Best Business Podcast. My mission is to help create 200 new multimillionaire business owners. How? You'll do better when you know better. In my interviews, you'll hear from self-made millionaires, seven-figure business owners, authors, and world-class experts sharing how they did it so you can too without experiencing the same obstacles they did. Now, if you like this interview, please share it with a friend you think will benefit. They'll appreciate it, and I will as well. You can also connect with me on social media. Look for Daryl Urbanski, D-A-R-Y-L, Urban Ski, U-R-B-A-N-S-K-I, and add me so we can be friends. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy what I've prepared for you right here, right now. Hello, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Daryl Urbanski, your host as always, and today we are joined by Corey Poirier. And Corey is an award-winning keynote speaker who has presented to over 150,000 attendees, plus shared the bill with Deepak Chopra, Stephen Covey, and General Rick Hillier. He is also host of the top-rated Conversations with Passion radio show, which features people like Jack Canfield, John Gray, Rick Hansen, Olympic gold medalist Silken Lawman, and hundreds more. Corey is also a nine times acclaimed international best-selling author who has appeared on television specials, presented TEDx and Mo Monday's talks, founded a business publication, and as CEO of a seminar company, a media company has interviewed more than 3,400 super achievers. He's also a seasoned stand-up comedian and a rock recording of the year nominee, and I've asked him here to join us today and share some insider secrets on the keynote speaker industry so any of us looking to get on stages can do it too. So Corey, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. I really appreciate the chance to talk again and catch up. How you doing, my friend? I am doing world-class, Daryl, and I am, if I could, if I were any more excited, I wouldn't be able to contain myself. <laughs> You'd so be vibrating. Doing very well. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's I, awesome. I can't, I can't drink coffee for that reason. Right. I, I, I'm one of those people that if I put caffeine in me, I'm just like a little energizer bunny. So right. no, I, I'm, I'm, I'm doing as well as anybody possibly could be, I think. That's awesome. That's awesome. So, I mean, that's a really impressive list of credentials. Obviously, you've accomplished a lot. You've met some really amazing people, but it didn't sound like you started off that way. I don't know, like, were you born into a family of entrepreneurship? How did you even get started in, as like an entrepreneur? Well, I certainly wouldn't say that I was born into a family of entrepreneurs. My grandfather ran a construction company, and he was pretty well the only entrepreneurial mentor I had, and, and he didn't even view himself as an entrepreneur. He viewed himself as somebody who was working at a trade and started the business to help pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. my my mother was, wasn't an entrepreneur, but I saw her multitask so much as a single mother raising me. And so I would say I learned a lot of lessons, life lessons from her and maybe even some skills from her about how to be an entrepreneur, even though that wasn't her end game, even though she'd mm -hmm. never operated a business. She gave me a lot of lessons and skills that I see us as entrepreneurs employ and execute on every day. And then, mm -hmm. like I said, my grandfather was living the life of an entrepreneur, even if he didn't see himself as such. So I didn't really have a whole big family of entrepreneurs, but I definitely had a few little glimpses of, of hope mm -hmm. in terms of you know, things that I'd want to look up to or, or, or learn from. Right, right, right. So how about yourself? How did you even get started? I mean, keynote speaking and running a show and running companies. What was your first personal step into into the kind of the game of running a business? Well, I guess it started for me when I, when I really kind of go back in the, in the memory banks and say, okay, what was the first entrepreneurial endeavor? I have to say at 19 years of age, I was in an entrepreneurial program and the end result of the program was that we would get some seed money and we'd be able to use that seed money to launch a business. Mm. And me and my business partner intended a totally different business and ended up resulting. So we were going to open a clothing slash CD store and we were 19 years of age at the time and, and didn't really realize that the capital involved to open those kind of stores would be primitive at our age. Mm -hmm. So we went through this whole business plan only to discover that, hey, this isn't very realistic. Right. And then not only that, we actually, through the feasibility study, we realized that, you know, maybe the world didn't need another clothing and CD store in a small little town. And especially at a time when CDs were maybe not in the way out, but, you know, there were signs that eventually they would be. Right. So what happened was to get the seed money and still have a business, we had to now all of a sudden come up with a brand new business in a week uh, <laughs> because the program was ending and it was like, you know, if you don't have the money, the whole deal is, you know, and we were getting paid a small little weekly pay 
to take the program. For most of them, it was through unemployment insurance. But for me, I just heard about it and thought, hey, this is almost like a job. I mean, mm -hmm. in the little town I was from, it was almost as good of an income as I was going to make working for somebody else. <laughs> and but, but the money was about to end, so the program was finishing, and if we wanted to seed money, we had to have a legit business plan. So what happened was we were, again, about two weeks away. I said to my business partner, Tyler, at the time, I said, you know, we had been interviewing entrepreneurs. We've been enjoying that. We've been learning from them. I love some of the stuff we're learning. It seems like it's exclusive insight that we wouldn't be able to learn otherwise. And we're almost getting permission to, to share the stuff that's taken them years to learn mm -hmm. without any cost to us mm -hmm. and without having to sell them on why they should sit with, sit with us for coffee. And, you know, if they were going to get a piece in the publication and promote their cause, they were more than happy to spend time with us. Mm. So I said, you know what? I like this. So why don't we turn this into a business? And there was nothing in the small town where it's from like it. So what we essentially did, and the best visual I can give Daryl, especially for your listeners, would be that we basically launched a small hometown or regional version of Success Magazine mm -hmm. in newspaper print. So it was very similar to Success Magazine, and, and I had never seen Success Magazine, but looking back now, I know it was similar. And essentially what we did is we go out and interview local entrepreneurs and business owners and share their journey and success story or their tips on how to manage your money or all things that an entrepreneur would need. Mm -hmm. And so we basically launched an entrepreneurial newspaper. Hmm. And that was, I guess, my first foray, if you will, into entrepreneurship at the age of, I guess, 19 going on 20. Right. Which is awesome. I mean, first of all, what I loved about that story is that you did all the research, you were emotionally committed to a certain business model, but then through the research, you figured out it wasn't a good idea and you changed directions. That, right? Like everyone here, like that's all they need from the interview. Like that would solve so many people I see that would just solve the problems that they've gotten themselves into right then and there because you did the research, you looked around, you did the competitive analysis and right off the bat, you decided it wasn't a good idea. You know, it's funny, you mentioned Success Magazine. I actually know Darren Hardy and I remember talking to him and this isn't one of his programs too, but he was saying that he got a chance to speak with Warren Buffett and he asked Warren Buffett what the number one skill, like success skill trait that he thought he had over other people. And he said he thought it was the ability to say no. Because he was like, I get hundreds of deals that come across my desk every day, you know, but I say no to 99.9% .9 of them. Anyways, I just love that because it wasn't a good idea. You said no, and then you kind of went with what was working. So that's really cool. So now in how you're in your progress, I mean, you've been at this for a while now, as you've developed as an entrepreneur, have you feel, do you feel like you've had to overcome any major challenges in your career? Have you crossed any major milestones, like looking back where you can connect the dots, but you didn't see them moving forward? You know, I hate to go right back to, I guess, an example I was already, I guess, sharing, if you will. But with that newspaper, mm -hmm. that was probably a big moment. And, and to have it happen so early in my entrepreneurial journey. But what happened at the end of the, the life cycle of that business, uh, fast forward roughly about a year from when we launched it. And even actually a month in, my business partner decided it wasn't for him because he didn't realize we were going to have to make cold calls. Mm. and. And he basically, and we're, we're still really good buddies, but I think he would tell you too if he was talking, he froze on those early calls and mm -hmm. he would find excuses not to go out. And, and he was basically getting to the point where he was only putting in about four hours in the business because he was trying to avoid right. any interaction with a customer that he didn't know. Right. So that so basically after a month, he decided he wanted to move across the country to the other side of the country and move away from the business which is, in essence involved me essentially buying out of the business a month after he bought in. So that was a major challenge at 19 years old, never having run a business. But then fast forward, like I say, roughly a year, still running the paper. And I come to the realization, a couple of realizations. One was that if I kept running this paper, I was going to become the guy, almost like the actor that typecast. Mm -hmm. I was going to become the guy who did something that people thought was a big deal when he was really young because it was a small town and I was getting some media exposure, but then I was going to be typecast. It was going to be a thing of, okay, well, is this, you know, is this it? And, and there's nothing wrong with it if, if, if it was it, but I kind of wanted to see more of, I guess we'll call it corporate Canada at the time. Mm. And so that was one <laughs> thing that was pushing me was, you know, it's kind of sounds funny, but uh, I know, that, that was laughing. one thing that was pushing me, <laughs> corporate Canada, but it was pushing me, you know, I guess in the direction of, okay, well, you know, maybe this isn't the plan to keep doing this forever just like this. You know, mm -hmm. I was really young, and I thought there's a lot of other experiences I want to have. 
and it was I was tied to the business. I mean, I, it was I won't say twenty four seven, but it was definitely uh, an eighteen six. Mm-hmm, you know, so mm-hmm. I didn't know that I, at nineteen, if I wanted to keep doing that for ten years and miss out on a lot of journeys I could have. So that was one issue. The second issue was the paper itself. We were it was turning a profit. So I, I've had a, a business publication since then that I ran for six years, but that paper I ran for a year, and it, both of the papers. I never lost money in one issue. So not one issue mm. didn't make money. However, so that, that sounds great on the surface, but for the first one, the, however, is that even though it didn't lose money, the, the variable was that it was basically paying for the publication, covering a break even, but my own bills weren't getting paid. So then when I would take money from my own, from the company to as my withdrawal to pay personal bills, then the business wasn't covering itself. Mm. So in terms of if the business was running and it was a side project, then, you know, for my first business at that young of an age, it was doing great. If I could have lived without, you know, having any expenses, then great. But with having your own personal expenses and the paper, it was just cutting it too close. So I knew it was a limit shelf life unless I went further in and committed that this was going to be the, the it for the next 10 years. But if I was still going with the idea that, hey, I don't want this to be the only thing I do, then I knew something was going to give. So uh, that was a long story and a long way of saying that, I guess, in terms of early challenges, a major challenge was having to walk away from the company knowing that it didn't succeed, at least to my expectations from when I started it. Mm -hmm. That was a hard pill to swallow. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But it sounds like you were very clear about what your goals were and that, you know, and that you were able, again, you were able to say no. You were able to identify what your goal was and you saw that this wasn't going to take you there and that it wasn't, you know, it wasn't a fit for you. It wasn't quite right. It was kind of like Goldilocks of three bears, you know, too hot, too cold, just right. You're like, this isn't just right yet. So, so what'd you do then? Well, so I guess what, what I did then was, it's kind of funny. I mentioned I wanted to experience life outside of, of what I had been doing in the small little town. So I had an opportunity to move across the country to a larger city, you know, not the largest city in Canada, but much larger than PEI. I was uh, I was living in a little town at the time. I think there were around 5,000 people. Since then, it's amalgamated. It's now 10,000, so it's a big city now. But whenever I was growing up, it was less than 5,000, and I moved to Edmonton, Alberta. And at the time, I think Edmonton is about 700,000, six or 700,000. So obviously, there was a pretty big culture shock. But yeah, so I, what I did was I moved across the country, ventured into, as I mentioned earlier, as I called it, corporate Canada. And I took a position with Toshiba. With, of course, a lot of people, I think, you know, we're still at a stage where a lot of people know Toshiba from laptops mm-hmm. and even maybe even picture tubes, depending on our age. So Toshiba, I worked for that company as a, basically as a first a junior sales rep, then a sales rep, then an account manager, then a major account manager, and then a sales manager. And, and that all happened in less than five years. Wow. But, uh, but yeah, so I moved across the country and I basically went into the corporate world. And I guess we could say sort of took a break from entrepreneurship, mm-hmm. even though as a singer-songwriter, I was putting out CDs and playing gigs, so I guess I was technically still mm-hmm. putting my, testing my foot in the water of entrepreneurship, and then also working in sales the way I was, I was getting a small, tiny base salary, mm-hmm. but at the end of the day, I had to cover you know, my own, yep. I had to basically work on my own hours, I had to you know, sell yourself. like it was my own business, yep. yeah, I had to manage myself, I was basically running my own business, except for I was getting a little bit of guaranteed money, yeah. um, so I feel like I always... Was still in entrepreneurship even when I went into sales, but yeah, I, I kind of went and worked in the corporate world for a while. So that was kind of where I went after the newspaper. So then, how did you get into keynote speaking? Well, you know that I guess I'll, I'll fast forward through the career I mentioned because I spent about ten years in that business. So when I worked for Toshiba, I spent five years, and then I went and spent another five years with a company called Konica Minolta. Okay. And in both companies, what I was doing was selling photocopiers, mm. business to business, mm-hmm. slash door to door. So not for the faint of heart. Right. But that's a great, that, honestly, that's a great, great, great education and, and entrepreneurship. I mean, you have to sell. You talked about your friend who couldn't really even get on the phone to talk to customers. I mean, you're going to have to talk to customers, right, if you have your own business. So even though, like you say, it's not for the faint of heart, that probably must have been some of the best sales training you've ever gotten ever. Oh, it, it absolutely was. I mean, I, we estimated that in the first five years, just at Toshiba, I had done more than 10,000 cold calls. And that didn't include follow-up calls or, or continuous calls. That was just cold calls. So that, you know, maybe gives somebody a bit of an impression. It's about 2500 a year. So you're talking 200 and some a month, and that's not including your sales calls, your demos, all the other stuff we were doing. So definitely a good experience in communicating with clients. I'm sure that 
played a part in my speaking years later and selling and negotiating and so many skills, as you mentioned and alluded to, that I learned from that, you know, that entire journey. And it's funny, Robert Kiyosaki, who, you know, listeners might know as the uh, creator of Rich Dad Poor Dad, mm-hmm. he actually talked about how he spent five years, I think it was five years, selling for Xerox just so we could learn about sales and, and growing business. So, you know, that tells you, and that was the same industry I was in. So, yeah, I spent 10 years in that industry, and then that, so to bring us full circle in terms of how I got into keynote speaking, kind of a weird journey, but basically within those 10 years, in the last probably year and a half, two years of it, I started performing stand-up comedy. And how that started was I was in a play that I was directing, and one of the actors said, hey, do you want to, try this stand-up comedy workshop at the university, and I said, that sounds terrifying. I'm in. <laughs> so so we went through this two-week workshop. The, the guy just showed us how to adjust a mic stand and told us that his favorite comic rules, and that was basically our training. The next week, we were told we were going to watch people entertain us, so we showed up at this comedy club, and we found it five minutes of showtime that we were going to be the entertainers. Um, <laughs> and, and, the, and the reason we were going to be watching people entertain us is because we were going to be sitting while our their co-comics were right. doing entertaining. Right. We we're just taking turns to entertain each other. But And there was also an audience there. And once we found that out, uh, this was a big life lesson for me too, but once we found that out, there were 15 that showed up that night and eight were left by the time we found out we we're going to have to perform. So wow. seven people literally just left and said, yep. I'm out. And these people went through the workshop. Like they you know, had all intentions, but as soon as they were faced with the prospect of it, and, and what he had told us is that he learned that if you tell people, give them time to prepare, he would have had those eight or those seven not show up. Plus, he would have had another two or three talk themselves out of it mm-hmm. that actually talked themselves into it. So he did it on purpose that way. Right. And so what happened was, to, to make a long story short, because I, I often share the story of my first night in comedy, but what I will say is basically, to skip a big part of it, I jumped up on stage, told what I thought was the best joke I knew in my life, fell on deaf ears, found out that the reason I fell on deaf ears was because I hadn't even turned the mic on yet. <laughs> <laughs> and and so the sweat was coming down my face. I jumped further in. and Basically, I bombed. And then I got the mic turned on, and then I bombed again anyway. Um, and then I kept going back, show after show. I ended up doing all told about 700 shows over nine years. And but here's so here's where it links in with stand up or for keynote speaking. So what happened was I was performing stand up. Started teaching a sales program at a local college. And it was a college that had never done one before, so I often say it was appropriate mm-hmm. that I had to sell them mm-hmm. on the sales program. Mm-hmm. And so I did sell them, started teaching the program. And what I discovered is that there were parts of, of the structured teaching like a teacher in school that I didn't like, parts I liked, but parts I didn't. And then there were parts of stand-up that I really didn't like and parts that I liked. And I kind of was getting a taste of my passion. I had a jump in my step because they were giving me bits of my passion, like giving me bits of that fire in my belly, mm-hmm. but there was still something missing. And then I discovered this thing called speaking. I mean, I'd heard of, I saw the commercials or infomercials with Tony Robbins years earlier, but I didn't know that, that Mr. Anthony Robbins was actually earning a living. I thought he was basically selling a book or a product, but I didn't know he was actually getting paid to speak as well. Mm-hmm. And once I found that out, everything changed. So basically I was like, wow, this is a lot of the elements that I love about stand-up and like about training. And it has few of the elements I don't like. So what happened was I kind of just made the segue. I, I, I basically merged the two. I kept on performing stand-up. I kind of got out of it, the class teaching stuff. I did it for a while, but I got out of it. And then I merged the two of them and, and started taking on clients as a speaker. And, and you know, the rest, I won't say it's history because there's a lot of history in between there, but the rest kind of started playing itself from there. But that's how I got into keynote speaking. It started with a, a journey onto a comedy stage. Got it. Well, I mean, that's the perfect, perfect place to cut your teeth, especially to get get out of your skin. There's just the bomb. Right. Um, you know, I think for a lot of the listeners here, there's probably an easy way to ease into it. You know, you don't want to get thrown on the stage in front of 10,000 people and have that be where you choke. Right. So if anyone here is listening and they're like, OK, that's how you got into it. But how do you how do you get rolling? How did you get like your gigs lined up? How do you you know, qualify. I mean, I guess you had a topic, you were a sales trainer. That's kind of what got your foot in the door, I guess. Yeah. I started with sales training. Absolutely. That was how it began, if you will. And then in terms of how I started building the, the business, it was, there were a couple of things. So one was, and that's why I mentioned I kept doing the training at the college for a little bit. It became sort of a feeder 
for, for clients because I'd had people that would come into that sales training program and they'd be sent by their larger company. Mm. And then what would happen was they would go, Hmm, maybe we should bring you in to do this for our company. And so that was one, one, I guess we'll say Avenue where I started picking up clients. Another area think still through that college is people, companies would call and say, you know, I want to, I write about your sales program in the course calendar and I want to send some people, you know, how many people should I send and what will the pricing be? And they were really good. The college would actually figure out in certain cases, it was more sensible and feasible for me to actually go to the client site. And they didn't even want anything from it, like any fee from it. So what would happen is a client would call in and say, you know, we need to send some people for training. They would connect me with that person. And then that person and I would discuss it and see what we could bring together. Mm-hmm. And then, and of course, that that was a really soft sell, you know, it was a, a warm sell for sure, because they already had so much credibility because of the college. So that was one area. And then another area, uh, what happened was that the college as well started, they had a corporate salesperson after a little while who would actually go out and sit with companies and talk to them about their training needs. And this was a college, so they could be talking about any different training need. But every now and then it would come up that they wanted sales training or customer service training. And then what would happen then is they would connect with me, connect them with me, but the college would set the pricing. So they'd ask me what I needed to make, and then they would take their portion. So that's kind of how it started. I mean, that was, I'm going to say, nowhere near, it was almost like having a speaker's bureau working with you because it was nowhere near enough business to, mm-hmm. to keep you going. Right. But it was definitely uh, a good starting opening of a door to get you some early testimonials. But in terms of how I started building the business, I guess the short answer is what I did was I would speak for no fee. I never like to use the word free, but I would speak for no fee. Any opportunity could where there was going to be a big enough audience for me to make a big enough impact to make it worthwhile. So some of the listeners uh, may have heard of Good Life Fitness. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, Good Life is in, in Canada, I believe, at least, the largest fitness chain. Right. And they bought out a fitness chain called New Body Fitness, which was the largest chain in Atlanta, Canada. Well, they were, for example, an early client. And my first gigs, I never got, didn't get paid. Then I got paid in, they traded me three months, three, three month memberships that I could give to clients as a thank you for hiring me. So just kind of like a barter, if you will. Right. And then my biggest fee I ever got from them, and it was, it, I did more, like five more talks for them for this fee, was $250. And that's what they paid me each time. But take the money off the table, the testimonial from the guy, and, and this fitness chain was around for 20 some years. And he was well-known in the city. And he sent me on his own. I never asked for it. He sent me a testimonial letter, reference letter. And one of his notes said, we've enjoyed many presenters over the last 24 years, but none more so than you. And this was in my first year of speaking. So, I mean, I really even shouldn't have been good enough to get that kind of testimonial. So the point is, is that I would get in to do talks for organizations like that. And I started recognizing the value of now I'm with the college, with one of the largest fitness chains probably one of the largest in Canada because there wasn't many after good, yep, good life bought yep, a lot of them. Yep. And then also I was doing talks for rotaries and groups like that. And so what would happen was you do a talk for a rotary and I'd have valuation forms. And this is a really big tip for anybody that's jumping into the speaking business. You're going to need testimonials really quickly if you want to get bookings. And the challenging part is how do you get the testimonial without the booking, but how do you get the booking without the testimonial? And so one way to, to get rid of that problem is do a talk for a rotary or a group like that or a chamber, have some evaluation forms, and usually it's going to be in the rotary, let's say, all different companies represented. Have a place where they can provide a testimonial and then ask if you can use the testimonial in conjunction with your service or your marketing mm. campaign. So all of a sudden, you do a talk for 100 people in a rotary group, and, I mean, there's even a system of how to make sure you get 95 of those forms back every time. And so, you know, I use that, and then even early on. So all of a sudden, you get those back. And not everyone says, yeah, you can use the, the testimonial, but let's say 60 do out of 100. So now all of a sudden, your first day, if that was your first talk ever and they liked your talk and they gave you the testimonial and said you could use it, now you have 60 companies' names that you can put on your website with testimonials. Um, you, can't, you can't buy that value. No, so, you can't. And that's so what we're doing a talk how, for free for. Yeah, exa- exactly. And yeah, and that's why I heard one time a speaker say, there's never a good reason to do a talk for free, but there's plenty of good reasons to do a talk for no fee. Mm, mm, that's a great quote. Yep. Yeah. So it's, I mean, so that was how I get started. I basically had this one company that was almost like a speaker's bureau helping me find gigs because I took the time to sell to them on the sales program and started delivering it and it was getting good results and getting good feedback from clients. And then I started doing talks for no fee for uh, organizations who I knew could represent a lot of different companies in the room at the same time. And then I also would, so I guess the, the, 
So, and then word of mouth, of course, would start to build from that. Mm-hmm. So I had another thing on my form that would say, you know, of anybody else who might be a good fit for this presentation. And then I would start getting leads from that. And then the other part is I would actually go, or not the other part, I guess, but because I had a sales background, I was okay with and comfortable doing some sales calls as well. And so I had to, I mean, qualifying was the hardest part. But what I did at the time was I would, I would just basically do a logistics thing and say, okay, if they have this many employees, their revenue is probably this amount if I couldn't find their revenue. And if the revenue is this amount and they have this many employees, they probably either do training or they should be doing it. And so I'd pick up the phone and start calling those companies. So when I started building, it was a mix of all those things. Which is great because one is the worst number in business. One key employee, one key chance source of leads, one key product. I imagine for yourself, you probably developed a lot of different types of presentations. You wouldn't always do the same presentation over and over. You probably did for a bit, but I think after a while, you probably develop a portfolio of presentations, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And another thing I did, which is kind of related to that, is I used to do public seminars. So I'd run seminars in the uh, the region where I was starting my business at, and there were three main provinces that I kind of operated in. And so I'd run seminars in each of those provinces. And these are like open to the public seminars, sell a ticket for it, that type of thing. And that really helped as well because it would introduce me to a lot of, it introduced me to a lot of people I couldn't have met otherwise and helped also drum up and deliver some leads. I will say, and this is kind of the, I'm almost going to say the, the nature of the beast or the double-edged sword is at the same time as it drummed up a lot of business, I also know that it cost me a lot as well because the seminars took so long to put together. And, you know, the revenue that you can make from the seminars when you're early on, it's there. But if you calculate the amount of work it took, you could probably do, I could probably at the time do four talks and make more money than to put together a seminar. And the seminar would take literally months in between everything else you're doing to put together. So, but I did do that. And I, I, you know, I, I love that. I cherish that time because, I'm working with clients all the time or putting on public seminars and I understand their business model better than most speakers because I spent the time getting my hands dirty in that business. And and what I will say is what you can probably hear as well, Daryl, is when I started, I had, I had speakers from the speaking associations, both well, in North America, there's two main ones. And I would listen to programs and interviews by those speakers. And they would all say, you know, if you basically, if you build it, they will come. If you have the right marketing, people will beat down your door. And, you know, whether that's true or not in the speaking business, that wasn't true for me. So what I can say, and you probably already heard this, is it involved a lot of hustling. <laughs> you know, and when I say hustling, I, don't, you know, some, I get, it's kind of a catch-22 because hustling can have a negative connotation to right. the word. But I, I'm just talking like Gary, Gary V would say hustling. Right. You know, just out there the, making the stuff happen. Right. Shaking hands, kissing babies. Otherwise. Yeah, 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 yeah. So let's quick, exactly. re- let's quick recap. So you had a burning desire. You decided that you wanted to pursue this path. So you started speaking anywhere and everywhere you could. And not only were you just speaking for business, but you're also kind of getting some fun out of it too, which I think is an important thing. I mean, people that are interested in being keynote speaker, they may not want to be stand-up comics. But I think just from like even myself knowing that I do give keynote, well, not keynote, but I do speak to large audiences. I think my largest audience is only a few hundred people, but still for a lot of people, that's, that's something they haven't done. But I think when you said that, I was like, there's a lot of value in being comfortable in front of an audience and being able to just kind of jostle with them and, and make jokes and kid and kind of get that engagement up. Because I think if, if you just, if you don't have any speaking training, you can just get up and just talk and it can turn into a lecture really fast. And that's not going to be as memorable. Right. And I think that's, you know, I think that's a huge, huge, huge part of this, too, is that, you know, it's not so much about what you're going to say. It's also about the audience participants experience. So that's something I think I don't know what you want to say to that. But I think that that probably really, really helped you just develop and why you've, you're you know, why you're an acclaimed keynote speaker, because that's just I just right off the bat. I'm like that may, not to minimize it at all. But to, I mean, it would make sense why you would win awards if you're that comfortable on a stage and able to joke with people and make them laugh and smile and have fun and deliver great content at the same time. I mean, that's a really powerful combination. Yeah, absolutely. So what I'd recommend to people that are wanting to get more comfortable with speaking and don't want to be thrown to, you know, throw themselves to or be thrown to the lines like I was is something like a, a Toastmasters, for instance. Yes. I mean, that's, that's kind of a, you know, it's not a bad way to say it, but a baby step your way in. You know, myself, I, I went to Toastmasters for a year. It helped me get rid of a ton of ums and ahs 
And I was already speaking publicly and, and professionally for five years at that point. So Toastmasters has a ton of value for, you know, whenever you decide to join a group. Like, yeah, so or a Dale Carnegie speaking program, which will cost you quite a bit more than Toastmasters, but still very effective. But in terms of the comedy connection, what I've said, and I stand by it, is I haven't discovered anybody yet who studies communication more than a stand-up comic. You know, there, I mean, Toastmasters, we study communication, but nothing like stand-up. The stand-up connection or the stand-up level of study is go to a comedy club, you get five minutes at an amateur night, let's say it's your first gig ever. If you're wise or you're told by another co-comic or even somebody who's a pro-amateur comic, pro-am, you know, they'll tell you to record your set. So you record your set, you had five minutes, and then you go home and analyze the heck out of it. Why did I get a laugh? When I tripped over my words there, why did I get a laugh when I stepped on that tile rather than this tile? Why did I get a laugh whenever I delivered the joke wrong? You know, and, and what was the funny in the wrong that I should now be working into the joke? Or why did this story that happened to me, because this happened to me actually, but why did this story that happened to me at a stag party that's hilarious to everybody I tell it to in a room, why does it not come onto the stage and translate properly? But what are the elements in the joke that will? So I took a, a seven-minute bit about a seven-minute experience you know, you should never deliver a joke in real time, but I did. And it bombed horribly. I was early on. And so I found out that the, the key part of that joke that would work turned into the maybe 20-second bridge joke, like a 20-second joke to carry it to the next bit. That At seven minutes, there were 20 seconds that I could get that worked hugely, like worked super well. Right. But it was all I could get to work. Right. So, you know, here all of a sudden, I had to trim from seven minutes to get to, you know, 10 or 20 seconds. So... Who studies communication like that? Nobody that I know. We used to study Jerry Seinfeld as a DVD called I'm Telling You for the Last Time, where he actually tells his 20 years of material uh, for the last time in front of an audience. And he has, a joke, he has a laugh every 13 minutes. And the reason I know that is because we had a comedy clinic, clinic where we timed it and, and studied him to say, why is this happening? Why is it happening here? How is he you know, getting a laugh when he's not delivering a punchline yet? What I'm getting at is nobody that I've ever discovered since studies communication at that level. So I don't know if I would ever have gotten better training for a speaking career than I got from the stand-up stage. Mm, which is a huge tip. Any, anyone here that's listening to this that either is already speaking or looking to speak, I mean, that's... That's a huge, huge tip. I also love Toastmasters. It's something I've done myself. Very, very helpful. I'm actually signing up again because I'm going to be emceeing a wedding this summer and I want to, I just want to brush up my skills. But it's funny because I do frequent a comedy club around the corner and I don't know, you might make, get me to go up on stage because it does sound like a great way to just make a fool of yourself. And then I think, you know, and just get more comfortable with being in front of so many people. So that's a huge, huge tip. So, all right, what else do you have people? If someone's starting out, they're struggling, we already covered a few things that I think are, would be good to highlight. So one, we talked about trying to comedy, talked about Toastmasters, talked about speaking for no fee, but still trying to get a fee out of it, whether you're trying to get leads, you're trying to get testimonials. That was a great tip. I don't know if anyone realized that, but that was a huge tip by just having the evaluation form to be passed out, speaking in front of uh, certain audiences, like a chamber of commerce, if you're trying to go for a business owner, or some sort of rotary club, depending if you're like, if you're trying to deal with tradespeople, depending on what your market is, you know, trying to find a group or an association that has those people and just start speaking in front of them and collecting the leads, shake hands, kiss the babies and just work them. And the other thing that's really come out of this is I loved what you said. You've really emphasized the volume of practice you got both in your cold called experience and in how many times, like you said, you, you, you've done, sorry, I forget the term, but you've done like 700 comedy shows, right? Absolutely. Yeah, 700 gigs. Right, 700 gigs. Yeah. So that's like that also speaks to anyone that's listening to this, that it's not something that you will be great at tomorrow, but it's something, it's a path to go on. And now already, already, just only like halfway in this interview, we've got a great way to get started, great way to build up your credibility, whether it's speaking at a school or for a school, or again, just speaking for no fee and collecting the testimonials. And I think like, I just loved it. I really do love the fact that what you've given so far, because it would shortcut so many, just so many issues I could see for someone that wants to go down that road and doesn't even know how to get started. Now, you talked about the seminars that you used to do and that they would really burn you out. Would you ever do those again now if you had something to sell, like a coaching program or something on the back end, or you just would st stick to the keynote speaking presentations? Like, what's what would you recommend to someone starting out? <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, maybe I'll quote a really well-known company but at the same time, a company that not everybody 
can understand what product they deliver is the wrestling world, WWE. <laughs> uh, the big, you know, the big, I'm going to say, they're not the only game in town, but they're definitely the game in town. Mm. And, and one of the things they say when it comes to would you take, and you can name any wrestler from the 80s that burned a bridge with them, you know, the Ultimate Warrior who passed away last year, but they brought him back after they said they never would, and Bret Hart, the, the Canadian wrestler that's so well-known, or Jake the Snake Roberts, they, they always said, never say never. They, they even brought Hulk Hogan back after he burned Ultimate, you know, bridge after bridge. Um, and they just kicked him out again. And, and, they, and when they were asked, would you take him back again? And they said, never say never. <laughs> just right away again, even when they're kicking him out the door. So, but the point is, is that, so I have that philosophy too. I'll never say never that I wouldn't do a public seminar again. I would be more apt to probably, if I could make the logistics work, do one with a group of people, like two people or three people, because the logistics, I mean, I had people helping me, but it was more, you know, part-time virtual assistant, things like that, booking stuff and taking calls. But yeah, I would, I would definitely do it again, but I'd have to have the right structure. The, the challenge always is, is that, I'll correct that. There's not, not that there's, more revenue in being a keynote speaker and quickly just going out speaking. What it is is that there's a lot less work. And, and of course, as you've heard all along, I don't mind the hustle, but there's, there's less work. And at the same time, one of the big things about going out and doing the, uh, the seminars is, is that there's, I'm going to say, a lot more preparation to the day. So it, there's a lot of prep and getting it together. And so I don't know that I'd want to take that on unless my schedule was a lot more relaxed in terms of travel from the keynote mm-hmm. right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, but the key thing is you just said it is if I had a program that it made sense and it was the right audience to launch it through, then I think that type of seminar, that style of seminar is a great way to do it. And, you know, even if I give you an example, I don't know if you've heard of Daryl and I'm thinking you probably have, but a guy named P. Harbecker. Yep. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I know. I know. I don't know stuff as well as I wish I did, but I've worked with people that actually worked for him. In fact, anyways, yes, I know people that worked with him very intimately, and I know some of his stuff. Yeah. So T. Harbecker, he's the for your listeners that may not have heard of him, he's the author or creator of the the Secrets of the Millionaire Mind. I think I have. Or I think I think that's the title. It might be slightly different, but anyway, I, I remember listening to him on Brendan Burchard's Expert Academy live seminar. He was saying how when he launched. What he did was he actually put two tickets to his seminar in every single copy of the book. And he had to, he fought actually though, this is the interesting part about it, that the seminar was worth, to the people that took it, they said, you know, this seminar is worth at least a couple of thousand dollars. And he was giving away these tickets for free if he bought a $20 book. I mean, the logistics didn't seem to make sense. But what he discovered is if he had them in the room, then he could, he could get them in the room and then he could offer them, if he basically changed, transformed their life at the seminar, then he could offer them more products. And then those products obviously could be higher ticket than if he just sold a seminar for $25 at the door. Yep. So that's how he actually built that entire brand was through seminars, public seminars. He put the book out, he put the tickets in, and that's how he got the people through the door. The book became a bestseller. I think it sold over a million copies. So you can imagine how many people he put through those seminars. Right, right, right. <laughs> but the, the funny part of the story to me is that he actually had a bidding war on the book because publishers wanted it so bad, but he actually had the publishers basically willing to walk away because he refused to agree to put the book out without the tickets in it. Mm-hmm. They, and they were like, that hasn't been done. You can't put tickets inside of a you know, a book that's sitting in, in Barnes and Nobler chapters. It just, you can't do it. So he decided he could, he was going to do what you couldn't do. And I'm pretty sure I remember hearing too, he took a smaller advance for the sake of doing it. That's how much he believed in it. But he built that whole brand, which is a massive brand. He built that and since sold it simply by doing those public seminars and the people who bought it from him, they're still doing those same seminars. So can, you know, does it make sense to, if you have a launch or if you have a reason to have the seminars? Absolutely. I just, I guess, haven't got back around to having the perfect reason to do it. And the logistics are hard because you're going to be having to bring it to multiple larger cities to make it work. So I'd almost have to, to do it again. And, and you're, you're getting me thinking as I'm, I'm saying this, but to do it again, what I probably have to do is line up some keynotes on a tour. And then while I'm doing the keynotes, also book and plan the seminars. In the right. same places. 
Right, right, right. That could work. I mean, I've seen this model work a few different times. They call it the ascension path, where you sell someone a low-ticket item because it's about relationship building, right? So you sell someone a low-dollar item, and so because it's it's just like you can't really come out and ask someone to marry you right up front. So you kind of take baby steps where you start off and you just say, hey, what about my $20 book? And then you get them there, and then they get tickets for the event, but unless the event's in their city, they might have to travel. And even if it's in their city, they still have to book the time off. They still have to pay to get there, pay for parking. So there's a deeper commitment involved. And now they've come to this event and now there's a bit more commitment. They get, like you said, immense value and they keep kind of like, it's almost like gambling. They keep doubling down and doubling down and doubling down. And I can see a few ways that I've gone through that where I've bought something small and then ascended to spend literally tens of thousands of dollars with someone. So I think that's a great model. And I think people that, again, listening to this, if you take it to heart, there's a lot of value that can be put in there. I mean, I've talked to a lot of people that, you know, they want to be an author and they think they're going to sell a book and then they're going to retire rich off their books. You've got best-selling books. I don't mean to put you on the spot, but I mean, are you a bazillionaire from selling all those books? <laughs> I would love to, you know, in a perfect world, I'd love to say yes, right. but, but I can't say yes because right. there's so many fingers in the pot. Right. Yeah, there's so many fingers in the pot and there's so many other things. And yeah, you can make money from a book, but you can't retire on it by no means. So the book becomes the best business card ever. And if you have a book, you can put your knowledge in a book. That is a great lead generator. I mean, again, same thing. These people have spent hours sitting down with T. Harvecker, reading his thoughts, understanding his point of view, where he comes from. And they got these two tickets. I mean, that's just such a brilliant thing. And then they slowly upsell him. So that's huge. Now, I want to ask you because I don't want to leave anything on the table and I know you've got so much experience in this industry as well what other what are some of the greatest mistakes you see either other keynote speakers or people you work with making that you know that they would have greater success if they didn't do it well a big one is bullet points on your powerpoint so I'm not there's there's some people that you know feel you shouldn't use powerpoint I'm not of that school I I, I you know I've done talks without anything you know so an hour hour and a half talk where I basically, you know, it's all me. And mm-hmm. those are tough, but yeah, I've done them. And I understand why people are starting, you know, why people over the years have disliked PowerPoint because they feel some people have used it as a presentation rather than themselves. So I'd say a big mistake is using the PowerPoint as the presentation and not yourself. And then the second part, which is why it happens a lot that people do that, is because they put too many bullet points or too much text or too, you know, too many words on a, on a slide. That's a big, a big one. People have a hard time getting away from it. I mean, there's a whole, I'm going to say, psychological system I built for how I deliver now a story versus how I used to deliver a feature. You know, so I used to deliver a feature on a bullet point, and now I have an image that delivers a story. And, you know, if you watch Steve Jobs, rather, if you watch Steve Jobs present, you'll, you'll get it. You'll understand, you know, why he was considered the best presenter in the world. And there were surveys done. I mean, I heard at least three surveys where the results said that he, there were in the top five, of course, were Bill Clinton and Anthony Robbins in, in both cases, but Steve Jobs was ahead of them. And I believe, I mean, there's so many nuances that Steve Jobs did that you have to study to understand that. You know, there's a great book by a guy named Carmine Gallo, who we've interviewed in the past. And, and his book, one of his books is called The Presentation Secrets of Steve Jobs. And he dedicates a 300-page book and I might be wrong in 300 pages, but close to 300 page book to basically tearing apart and putting back together a Steve Jobs presentation. So, I mean, so, you know, for me to sum up and say, here's all the things Steve does, you know, it would take three hours. But but what I will say is one of the big takeaways is get away from the bullet points. The biggest mistake people can make is getting up there with bullet points, memorizing their talk based on those bullet points, because then they'll say, okay, well, this talk's an hour. I have an hour. And there's another secondary mistake is to plan and prepare your talk to be the exact same amount of time as the talk is going to be allotted for as the time allotted, mm. because all it takes is for you to pause differently then to laugh at a joke. You didn't think they were going to laugh at little subtle nuances will basically push you over your time. And, and there's nothing worse than going over time if you're on a bill with other speakers. So, right. and I learned that by the way, from my standup world, because we went one minute over, a nightclub, let's say a comedy club, like a Harris or a Yuck Yuck, they'll shut the mic off on you, you know, especially when you're starting out on amateur night. So, so I learned a lot about not going over time. So, I mean, I jumped a couple of areas there, but one big one is, you know, get away from having your slide filled with text. And then the secondary part to that is to 
when you're preparing your timing, if it's an hour-long talk, you'd be better off to finish in 50 minutes, even if everything worked exactly as you prepared it, than you would to finish in 61 minutes. Because the minute you go one, one minute over, your odds of getting invited back go down by about 90%. They drop by about right. 90%. So don't go over time and don't hit so much on the uh, each slide. Got it. Got it, got it, got it. Now, what about the business of keynote speaking? Are there big mistakes people make that they shouldn't? Yeah, I, I think, well, I think a big one is the collection of fees. So how you collect your fees is, is a big, can be a big damper on your business. So early on, especially, you know, when you're launching, there's this kind of thing that, that in the speaking world, and I guess in most worlds, is a catch-22. When you don't have the money to pay for a nice website and business cards and all that stuff, you need it the most. And then when you have the money, you don't need it as much. Right. You know, I, I, most speakers, if you have a TED Talk and, and you get a lot of praise on that TED Talk to you deliver, you can just send that to somebody. And you don't even have to have a website. As long as they know how to reach you, you'll probably get gigs. So, so what I'm getting at is that early on, your ability to collect on your bookings is huge. And if you're working with a large company, you know, it's not abnormal for a large company to try to Say, you know, we pay a normal process. We have a 60 days, net 60 type thing. And, and mm-hmm. then all of a sudden you do your talk and we don't pay. We don't start the processing of the payment until after your talk. And what I'm getting at is that you can go pretty broke pretty quickly if you're trying to put the bill for stuff. And, and I mean, travel is another factor if you're going to be a traveling speaker. So if you're putting the bill for travel and it's a big client, you know you get paid, but it might not be for four months. You could bankrupt yourself before you ever launch your career. So I would say on the business side, make sure you have a good process for making sure that you're getting paid early or upfront or definitely on time. Mm, 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 mm. Now, I, I'm, I don't know. I'd be inclined to insist that I get paid up front, especially if I, if I was getting started. I think you think once you get maybe some traction, and I, I'm only thinking for the listeners that maybe are like brand, brand new to this, you know, like to, it's an easy way to avoid getting burned, you know, or giving a talk and then them deciding to not pay you afterwards. Yeah, what I would add into that is if, if at the very least have a system for getting a deposit. And, and, and I will say the good news is if you're going to people who hire speakers, this is the catch 22, they're used to that. They're used to paying a deposit. Where you're going to run into trouble is if you're creating an opportunity in a company. So you have a friend who says, oh, you should come and talk to our company, but they've never hired a speaker and they're up for it and open to it. You might have a struggle there trying to get any money up front because they're not used to paying that way. But if it's a company who's hired a speaker in the past, even once, they've probably been used to paying a deposit. So a deposit is not abnormal. And the newer you are, I'm going to say the more challenging it is to get all up front or the majority up front. But you still should be able to get enough up front to make sure that if you're waiting three months to get paid, you still at least made enough to cover every bill that you're possibly going to have with that talk and made a little bit for yourself. Because you want to make, you want to have a plan so that if they went out of business before you got your last payment, you could still walk away and go, okay, at least I still was comfortable that I got right. paid enough. So uh, this is another one. How do you value, put a value on, on a presentation? Someone that's listening to this, maybe they've got some experience speaking and that sort of thing. Is it just whatever the client will pay? Is there certain tiers? Do you get like a rating and now you're an A-class speaker? I mean, how do you differentiate and how do you know what to charge? It really comes back, uh, Daryl, to essentially it's these little, I'm going to say, developments that allow you to, I'm gonna, I call it jump your fees, but there's little value. So let's say, and, and I'm going to call them almost experiment related or experience related rather, or credential related values. So in other words, did you just write a book? Could be one example. Do you have a column in a major publication? Do you, uh, have you just spoken for Google? <laughs> you know, whatever, or have you given a TED talk? And, and each one of those, so, you know, there's a, I mean, there's a list, you know, whenever I take people through teaching them how to get into the speaking world or, or coaching or mentoring them, you know, I take them through and there's a lot of tiers, like a lot of different things. But every time you do something like that, that is a value in the eyes of a client, that's the time to jump your fees. And, you know, early on, I mean, so there, I mean, somebody that doesn't know the speaking industry at all, what I will say is you can find out the way the fees work pretty easily. I mean, you can literally go to other speakers' websites and a lot of speakers have their fees just right there up front. So it's not like a, an industry where it's hidden. But what I will say is, as we said earlier, you're probably going to go starting off at no fee, and then you're going to jump to hundreds, 
I mean, yeah. that hundredth is going to be a variable based on a lot of, you know, a lot of things, more of a gut instinct, but a lot of things that you can kind of say, okay, well, I've been speaking for three months now for free. I've been getting glowing testimonials. You know, now it's time to test this out. And then you're going to find out from testing it out with those clients, you know, where they're accepting you at as far as market value. So there is a bit of trial and error, but you don't know until you put the price out there. And then what's going to happen is you're going to jump your fees as you get through the stages. So you start adding more credentials. You know, even just something like a milestone of, okay, now I've done 20 talks. You know, that's, you, you might decide in advance, that's when I'm going to increase my fees. Another thing to do is if you know that you're going to continue this career annually, then maybe you set an annual date. And say every September, if I haven't done it throughout the year, I'm going to decide if my fee should be bumped a little bit or if it's still at where you know still where it should be. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it's but going back to your question, it's there is a part of it that's got instinct. There's a part of it that you know researching and looking what other speakers are getting paid in the industry you're in, and then there's a part of test testing with the customer, you know, and, and saying you know here's what I'd have to do. I mean, you always want to have, in my opinion, when it comes to sales, you always want to have an out. So if if you're on your third talk. And you want to test five hundred dollars from a sales perspective. I think you want to have an out so that you can still come back and maybe make a, a counter offer. So maybe as an example, maybe at five hundred dollars, you also offer three values. So you had three things like, okay, well, what I'll also do is I'll do a, a video beforehand so that you can help promote. You know, use that video to promote it to members and, and generate interest in my talk. So maybe you say I could do three value ads like that at five hundred dollars. Let's say that's what you're you're at. And then you go to that client and tell them that, and, and they say, oh, you know, Jimmy, I wish we could do it, but our budget's $300 for a speaker. You know, we have, that's, that's it. I mean, I would love to work with you, et cetera, et cetera. So all of a sudden, you're out now so that you haven't pinned yourself in a corner, and it's a legit out because there is a value in you spending the time doing those things, is to actually say, okay, well, I do have one other option, Bob. And, you know, I, you saw that I put those values in and I added those extras those little niceties, well, that's something that most other, and it's got to be legit when you say this, but that's something that a lot of other speakers don't do. So, you know, there's a legit value to it. So what I can do, if I take those out, I'm not going to spend the time doing them, then I could, you know, I could look at doing this talk for $300 because now I don't have that extra three or $400 of value that I was offering. Right, 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 right. That's really good. Yeah. And again, it gives you options. It gives you negotiation space and it, it kind of forces you to think, I think more better, like in better terms as a salesperson, just to be better prepared for the negotiation itself. So people get an idea. What can speaker fees range to? Like you said, there's speaking for no fee for hundreds, for thousands, people charge tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands. I mean, where does it go? <laughs> so this is this is gonna maybe blow the minds of some people who don't realize this, and you know maybe it'll it'll uh, as I'm putting together my my new program that you and I were talking about, get paid uh-huh. to speak and speak to share your message. You know maybe I think it perks up some people's ideas that maybe I want to learn more about this industry when they hear these numbers. But it does go from actually I'll I'll even go backwards. I'll reverse it. It, it even goes from paying to do a talk. There's conferences where, I mean, I won't say any names, but there's conferences that still approach me and say, hey, you know, you pay to play. Like, we, you know, if you want in front of this huge audience of the right audience and right people, then you're going to have to join as a member and pay a $1,000 fee for us to prepare for your talk at the event. Mm-hmm. And so it can go from you paying thousands of dollars to, on the, the other end, getting paid and now I'll explain after I say this where this, you know, where this has logic in it, but getting paid over a million dollars for a talk for 45 minutes. Whoa. So, yeah. So now when I say as far as logic in, I mean, really, I can honestly say, because there's some people listening saying that's absurd. There is no logic to it. But the speaking field is essentially, there's a whole bunch of variables, but you're getting paid based on the value you bring to the event, but you're also getting paid based on the let's say on the on the return side what is the return you're delivering so i'll use an example of, of a name say a tony robbins mm-hmm. so anthony robbins i don't want to i'm not going to say that i know his fee but what i will say is i went to a learning annex a bunch of years ago and him and another person's name who some people love right now some people not so much but donald trump were both the keynotes they both got paid it was it was i saw it in the news after i went to the event but it said both of their fees for that event was a million dollars Yep. Bill Clinton gets paid a million dollars per talk. He only does 16 talks, I believe. That could have changed, but 16 talks a year. So why, why are they getting paid that much? Do they have a better, that much of a better message than the $45,000 keynote speaker? Probably not. Not, not necessarily, but, yep. 
what the reason is is because of their brand. I mean, let's yeah. be let's call a spade a spade. They're bringing a brand to the event. They're actually yeah. the keynote at a level that they can drive ten thousand people to your event. Yep. Or your employees telling everybody in the world, we had Walmart put on the most amazing event for us. They hired Cindy Crawford, even if she, you know, she might get paid a hundred thousand dollars. And that speaker who's hustling, who's you know maybe a top speaker but unknown, you know, known but not known to the average household name, known might get paid twenty thousand a talk. And right. then you have people doing an after dinner talk for free, and then you have people paying to be on the card. So, like I said, it can go from paying to all the way to you know over a million dollars a talk. But let's, you know, let's talk what's realistic. You know, what's the, 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 I don't want to say the average or norm, but I would say if you're looking at, let's say, a high-tier event and you're looking at a speaker that would share the bill with household names, if they're not a household name themselves, or you're looking at maybe maybe a musician or, you know, a comic or something who has a fairly big name, you're probably looking at around a five to a $10,000 fee range for somebody who's been in the industry probably five years plus. Hmm. So, I mean, that's just give you an idea. Do people get to that fee level in a year? Absolutely. You know, there's, you know, there's like a Brendan Burchard who we mentioned earlier. And, you know, listeners, if they know who Brendan Burchard is, I mean, again, I'm speculating, but I'm sure Brendan's, Brendan's fee reached more than $5,000 a talk in his first year. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, even just as a marketer, he knows the value of his time. Because I think one of the things that's important to also notice is that, like you mentioned, it's a brand. You're right. Like if Beyonce or some sports athlete gets paid to be a sponsor, it's not because they want you to use it. It's because they want all the people who watch everything you do to see it. And that's the value of it. And for a lot of people thinking you have to get out of the dollars per hour mindset, because if all you're doing is trading dollars per hour and you're not thinking about the value you deliver, you're really, really limiting yourself in your growth. If the value of your hour is worth more, you can get paid more for it. Even just as simple as getting when you get your oil change in your car, it's like 60, 70 bucks these days, and it takes them 15 minutes to do, 20 minutes to do. And it's not, right? And it's not a dollar per hour that you're paying for the end result. It's the exact same thing. And results is really the name of the game, depending on the industry you're in. And so that's, I can see why you get someone, again, like a Bill Clinton, he's going to be a huge draw to your event. If you have vendors who have booths set up, if you have a product to sell yourself, I mean, that's where someone would want to pay to get in, either because they want the credibility the credibility piece or because they would have an offer that matched that audience and it's almost like a marketing cost, right? It's like paying to be at an event and have a table there. You get to get up on stage, you get everyone to give you their attention for 60 minutes or 45 minutes or 90 minutes or whatever you got and at the end you can send them somewhere to your website to sign up, sign in. I mean, for some businesses that have their numbers dialed in, that's definitely, it's a, it's like, how can I do this again tomorrow? You know, like, when can I pay you again to be on stage in front of these people? So, that's a huge, huge, huge tip to that. So, which is awesome. Now, I don't want to go over time too much. I think we are going to be over a couple of minutes, but I want to ask about, do you feel that you have any habits that really helped you be successful as a keynote speaker? I mean, you've won awards, you've been on shared bills with like big names. You are a big name yourself. Do you feel that there's habits that you've had or developed that have, you know, helped you become who you are? No, I, I there's, there's definitely some key ones. One of them for sure is the ability to be self-disciplined. Mm-hmm. Because the speaking field is such that, you know, it can be, I'm going to say, like any industry, it can be feast or famine. So, yeah, and, and I mean, it doesn't, you know, I'll say it this way, if, if you're, again, if you, I'll, you go back to that word, if you hustle, uh, it doesn't have to be that, but it can be that. And, and you know, if you want to know that for sure, ask most of the speakers who suffered through 2008, whenever right, the whole right, recession right. came around and everybody cut their training budgets and speaking budgets. And even people canceled events that they had run for 25 years. Even after 9-11, I know guys that that's, they were doing a couple million a year speaking, and they said after 9-11, it killed their speaking business. Just no one wanted people to travel. They were just not organized. Yeah, so. Yeah, sorry, so I would say that. that's a, you know, so because it is that, that type of industry feast or famine, then you have to be self-disciplined because if you're just starting and you're building it, you're building, you know, building it so they will come, the challenge you run into is you could get, you know, paid from one talk more than you've maybe got paid in the past from five talks together, you know, when you start bumping your fee, or maybe more than you got paid weekly, your job from years ago, well, it'd be quite easy to drop the ball. And all of a sudden you lose that momentum and you might throw yourself back three months by losing two weeks momentum when you're just starting out. So I would say one thing is to, you know, I guess a habit that I've had is I've always managed to be able to be self-disciplined. If I'm not on the road and, you know, I'm, I'm not at the office and I'm working from home, I can get as much done from home, sometimes more, 
spend a lot of people kind of in office, but I know a lot of people when, as soon as they get home to work, they get nothing done. So I would say self-discipline is a big one in the speaking industry. Uh, And another one you alluded to earlier with Warren Buffett. And I even, I believe in it so much that I've actually done talks around this one area is and the talk actually was called the power of no. And Mm. it was around the idea of how important being able to say no is and being able to know how to say no, why to say no, and walk away okay and comfortably with that no. And so in the speaking field, I feel that's a discipline. It took me a long time to learn, and a habit it took me a long time to learn. But I've cultivated that habit and the ability to do it, and I think that served me well because there's more opportunities than – there can be more opportunities than you could ever say yes to. But the catch-22 is a lot of those opportunities – won't serve you well. I mean, it could be doing a talk on an area that you're not comfortable on and you're going to bomb, but you're, you want to take the talk because you want the extra money or you just want to gloat that you got the talk or there's the opportunity to do talks for free in front of a mega audience. And then you got to decide, do I say yes to this? Because if I say yes to this, I'm going to have to probably say no to another one that's offering me a fee closer to the event. So the ability to know how to say no. And if you say no, being able to walk away and say, okay, I made the right decision. I know I did. I'm okay with it. That has been a habit or a skill, if you will, that has that served me really well. So those are two I probably try to hone regularly, remain self-disciplined, and, and know how and when to say no and be okay with those no's. That's a huge tip. That's really awesome. Corey, you provided so much value for us today. Is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have asked you? I, you know, I, I don't think so. I mean, obviously, I, I love Daryl talking about the, the speaking industry and field and I think probably people listening, you know, we've, we've talked for this much time and talked so much about the industry and, and you great questions and dived really deep into the industry. And yet I didn't, you know, we didn't even scratch the surface. So what I will say, I mean, maybe I'll add in with your permission is that we're, we're I mean, so probably it looks like it's going to end up being June 8th as the launch, but I'll leave myself the chance of going back on that and saying it'll be in June, but probably June 8th that I'm going to be releasing some speaking videos. And because of I get this question so much and, and this area of discussion that we've had is so popular among people, I decided to put together a video series and actually start teaching this stuff. And so I'm going to be releasing four videos that all of those four videos are completely free. And basically I'm going to be revealing stuff about launching a career, a lot of the things you asked me today, but I'm going to go really deep into it. I'm going to talk... Yeah, I'm going to go talk even how you can actually find clients that pay speakers, know how much they pay speakers, know that they hire for your topic, and and actually know that when they're looking. And that's Whoa. huge to say that. But that is anyway, huge. so so I'm going to be going into that type of depth and level. And what I so I will say is that I'm going to be launching these videos. I would love to see some of your listeners check this out, especially if they think the speaking field might be for them at some point. Mm-hmm. And what I will say, I always like to be full disclosure. At the end of those videos, what I'm going to do is I'm going to offer people an opportunity if they want to dive even deeper and kickstart their career right away. Then I'm going to offer an opportunity for them to work with me deeper and something I've never done before. So, yeah, so that's probably, I guess, what I'm working on now that I would like to maybe add in that we, we didn't cover is that I'm going to be putting yeah, up those videos. No, of course, of course. Where do people go to, to sign up for that? Where I would send them is, it's pretty simple, thespeakingprogram.com thespeakingprogram.com okay and they can go there just even if they just want the four free videos right yeah absolutely so what happens is they go there they're going to find a video for me just revealing what I'm going to cover so I go into a little bit more depth than I did just a second ago and then right below that there's a sign up and what they can do is if they sign up there they'll essentially be joining our tribe but they can sign up there the videos will start coming out they'll be the first to know the videos are coming out they can watch all those videos for free. There's no cost at all. And then if they watch those four videos over a matter of, it's only going to be over a matter of a week and a half, so it's not a lot of time commitment. If they watch those four videos and they decide, hey, that was enough, I can I can launch a speaking career and never have to do anything more, then they can actually operate back out of our tribe too. So there's, you know, there's no obligation. It's as simple as us getting them to join our tribe is simply a, a, a way that we can deliver the videos. And then that's the best way to make sure they get them. But then, of course, like I said, they can always opt out immediately after as well. <laughs> I can tell you're Canadian because you just went out. <laughs> and I know people always <laughs> laugh at me for that. So that's out awesome. In <laughs> out and about on the roof. Eh? <laughs> no, I love that. I was Ken, and once again, the URL is the, say it again. The, the speakingprogram.com. Dot com. 
Perfect. So again, for the listeners listening to this, I highly endorse what you're talking about. I mean, you came here, you gave a wonderful hour of pure content. And I just honestly, this stuff is really good. I think if this is what you can give away for free on this interview, I'm going to be signing up for those videos myself. And I just, again, want to thank you. And I know you could have been doing other things. I know you've got a long list of other people that want your attention. So, you know, you didn't have to come here and do this, especially at this point in time in your career. So on behalf of myself and the listeners, I do really want to thank you and wish you and your family and your loved ones all the best because I know for some people listening to this, this is going to be gold. Like this really will be gold. And just thank you so much, Corey. I really appreciate it. Well, you know what, Daryl? Uh, thank you because you're making magic happen every day whenever you're working with people and you're, you know, putting the right magic out there, but also even with your show. So thank you for giving us all a purpose. You know, that's to me that, you know, that's what we're here for is to help give value to other people, help lift other people up along with us so that we're not climbing the mountain on our own, to use a, a weird analogy. Um, so, yeah, so I, w- I would say that, you know, it's my pleasure to be here because this is, you know, this is what I love doing. I love hopefully sharing a message that gets people thinking and maybe gets them taking action. So it was my pleasure. You've reached the end of our interview. Now, first, let me thank you for listening. I appreciate and respect you more than you'll ever know. And now I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. First, what three lessons did you just learn? What three aha moments just jumped out at you? Second, what can you implement for yourself and your business in the next 24 hours? Third, what can you give to someone else to help you with or give them to just do it for you? Whatever it is, remember taking action is the secret sauce to results. Now, if you think this interview would be helpful for a friend, please give them a link to it. It'll help them and it'll help me too. I'd also like to invite you to help me find out more about the challenges you're facing, your dreams, your goals, and how I can help you overcome what's holding you back. We both do better when we know better, and your success is my success. So please reach out and interact. You can visit our website, bestbusinesscoach.ca for Canada or California, where I'm from and where I'm living. You're welcome to also try out one of our paid programs. You can find us on YouTube, Facebook, and pretty much every other social media channel you can think of. You should also subscribe to the podcast. And if you're enjoying them, please leave us a nice review. It really helps. That's all for now. Once again, thank you. Take care of yourself. And remember, the world needs the best business you can build. And I believe in you.